Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today I'm joined by Valerie Armstrong, the creator and executive producer of the AMC series Kevin Can Fuck Himself. The show explores the life of Allison McRoberts, a woman struggling to redefine her life amid an unhappy marriage to her husband Kevin, an insensitive, unambitious man-child. The show presents contrasting perspectives of her experience. As a stereotypical sitcom wife when Allison is with her husband Kevin, shown with a multi-camera setup and canned laughter, and as a woman navigating a difficult personal path, filmed in the single-camera setup, more common to television dramas. This is easily one of the most inventive, creative, and deeply personal shows I've seen so far this year. It has been picked up for a second season on AMC, and the Blu-ray DVD of season one will be available on November 16th. Highly recommend you catching up with the show if you haven't seen it already, uh, because it's one of the best things out this year. And that says a lot. There's a lot of good things out there. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> Sorry, it's that, that little intermittent where I have to get the permission to record and all that stuff. I haven't, you think I'd be better at Zoom at this point in my life, and I haven't gotten it down yet. You know what? Let's never get good at it. Let's just you know, fight that battle until we no longer have to have it in our lives as much. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. 100%. So I, thank you so much um, for taking the time to do this, and thank you for making this show, but also, uh, fuck you for making this show because I got no sleep last night and it was something I was just going to, I got the screener sent. I was going to watch one episode of it and then I'm torn between this thing and I'm sorry I'm talking a lot, but I was torn between this thing of just watching one episode of it and moving on because I wanted to sit with it for a little while. It's one of those rare shows. I'm like, I don't want to binge this thing, but then I need to have more of a foundational understanding so I can talk to you about this. I'm so happy that we took the time to do this today. So it forced me to watch this because that's the only way I can get myself to watch anything anymore because there's too much good stuff. But so long winded way of saying thank you and fuck you. Anytime. I'm sorry. I said, thank you so much for watching. No, 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 no. Thank you. Uh, honestly, this is the kind of show that I didn't know I needed, but <laughs> I absolutely did need because it's a, there's been this, my, I'm 45. So I was filled with a lot of sitcoms growing up um, when probably between the ages of five to maybe 14 or so. Um, and I just kind of accepted them on face value. And then as I started becoming more self-aware and had a couple people like nudging me saying, hey, there's some things in here that you might want to think about a little bit um, that turned me off to them. And you've done this brilliant thing where you take a sitcom format and make it unnerving. And then you take something, a dark drama that's comedic. And so the, uh, it's, you never feel balanced with this show. And I love that. Thank you. Thank you. And I grew up the same way. I love sitcoms. Like in no way do I look at our sitcom part of the show and like, you know, look, look down at it. Like I, we, we very early on decided you can't wink at half of your show or a third no. of your show, whatever it ends up being. Like you, you, I can't ask an audience to sit around for 15 minutes saying like, this is dumb, right? Like that's, that's so, I'm totally uninterested in ironic distance. I think it's cowardly. So we did our very best to make a sitcom that we really like. But if you think about it for more than 15 seconds, you're like, oh, oh, he made a joke about how mental illness runs in her family. Yeah. Oh, that 
Right. And the, I think the only reason that you think about it twice is because you know she's a real person the minute she walks into the kitchen alone and you see her close up and you see that she's miserable. And that was really fun to play with throughout the show. Like, yes, we want to tell some silly stories in that multicam, but we want to show how those silly stories actually have really big consequences for other people, how Kevin never has to answer for anything, how he gets away with so much just by virtue of being white, being a guy and being funny. That And that's the, the brilliant thing about this is because you're, you're casting all across the board, but I think really between um, obviously a, you have to have these this dynamic of somebody who's Kevin playing into this almost Jackie Gleason honeymooners esque level of absurdity next to this almost neo realistic performance that you have on the other side and just those two worlds uh, colliding like that is just utterly fascinating and it's really interesting to see and it honestly I wasn't expecting to connect with it as much it kind of speaks to the work life dynamic and these these ways that we show certain sides of ourselves and it's very limited and very few people see the full picture of who you are. So it's, it's, I'm I not sure if that's something you're doing or. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Me, what that single camera does for Allison is that's where she feels her flaws. Like that's where she recognizes them and hates them. I think when we meet her, she wants to be the woman in the multicam and have that be enough and have that be satisfying and not like stomping on roaches all the time. I think she, when she <laughs> envisions her perfect future in that pilot, it's very old fashioned. It's what she was told she should want. Kevin is still there. Kevin is there just in a suit and she's serving mm -hmm. him there. Like it is pretty regressive that, that idea she has of what she thinks she should want. And to me, what the single camera does is say like, oh, no, she is utterly dissatisfied with this life. She just isn't in touch with that yet. She can stomp on roaches really hard. She can accidentally hit people and, and apologize. But that rage that she feels is like slowly seeping out everywhere until it just kind of bursts. <laughs> and it comes through in moments. And it as you acclimate to the show, you view everything differently. And it's really interesting to how you view the multicam portion of it versus the single cam. And that the, honestly, I got more comfortable with the multicam version of it as time goes on, as it progresses, because it's being used to accent something. It's always driving the narrative forward. And we're learning more about the internal struggle through this. And it's something that is clearly a device, but it just takes a minute to get used to. Yeah. And, and we, you know, we will never tell a story, a multicam story that has nothing to do with what's going on outside the world, the closest we got is in episode four, where they're in the basement making a stupid escape room and Allison and Patty are doing this massively sort of dangerous rabbit hole adventure. But what I wanted to do there is say like, by now, we know that whatever Kevin is up to messes up Allison's life in some way. So how is this stupidity going to hit this? And I, to me, it's like, slowly watching a car crash where they're going to intersect. You just don't know how. And at the end, it's that he called the cops because she wasn't answering her phone. Yeah. Something I can totally see like that sitcom part of the, of that scene works fine for me. Like, I think that is absolutely something a sitcom husband would do. And it's like, I thought that you'd been taken like Liam Neeson, you know, and like, ha ha. And on the other side of it, you see the like massive, anxiety and terror that caused 
And it's because she did she wasn't available enough for him. So that story to me is not like, yeah, Kevin is Kevin is so stupid and so incompetent. It's like, no, he's actually very, very manipulative. It's not that he called that he called the cops because he was actually worried about his car. It's because she didn't pick up the phone enough and she yep. needs more available. Like he's playing the doofus, but he is he's not so dumb. No, and and that's that's the sort of the uncomfortable things that you see in there, where there's always multiple layers to any of our actions, our reactions, and those kinds of things. That I think that there is elements of truth in all this. To for anybody can look at that and relate to it on some level, where there's things you know, I'm I'm married, I have you know, I have a stay-at-home wife, and there's these these layers of that that I'm like, oh fuck, is that, that's like that that might be a little bit too close to it, and there, but I'm. At least I'm cognizant of it. It's something I try to be aware of and not fall into those traps. But guys have asked me since watching the show, friends of mine, like, I'm worried I'm a Kevin. Am I? A Kevin? <laughs> if, you're, if you're asking that question, you're probably not. Today's episode of the Following Vulps podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. The last time I went into Bookman's, I went in with my normal. Just going to walk around the store, see if anything grabs my eye. Um, Normally I'll end up starting with a couple movies, going through the vinyl, some books, and the process usually takes about 30 minutes, sometimes an hour, depending on how much uh, time it takes me to find something that I'm interested in that day. Uh, This last trip to Bookman's, I was in there for about two minutes, because as soon as I walked in the door, Went over to the Blu-ray section, started with the Criterion stuff, and there was a copy of Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, uh, which is not only one of my favorite Kubrick films, it's one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, For some reason, I just haven't picked it up on Blu-ray yet, the Criterion release of it. I had the DVD, I have the Laserdisc, and I think I still have a VHS, double VHS, floating around somewhere of this thing. And... It's an incredible movie. If you haven't seen it, it's one of the movies that I think is often forgotten for how funny it is. Um, When people think of this movie, they talk about the lighting. They talk about the look of the film because Kubrick shot this movie uh, with all natural lighting and candlelights. uh, Candlelight, rather, for the interior shots. And he ended up having to use NASA lenses um, for parts of the film to actually be able to shoot at a speed um, where he would be able to pick up the imagery with the limited amount of light that was being provided by candlelight. So um, obviously it was a technical marvel, but this is a really fucking funny movie. This is uh, one of those rare movies that has actually gotten funnier with time. Comedy is one of those things that For the most part, I don't think it does well with time. Comedy doesn't age well. Comedy um, is something that normally, when the magic trick has been revealed, it can maybe be revisited a handful of times, but uh, for the most part, they wear out their welcome. If you've gone back to try to rewatch The Hangover any time in the last, I don't know, five years or so, I think that's a perfect example of something that just does not stand (laughs) the test of time very well. But Barry Lyndon is kind of the opposite of that, where this is a film that has actually, for me personally, gotten funnier as I've aged, as the film has aged, as I go back and revisit this at different times in my life. I 
pick up on different things, focus on different things. It reminds me of the way that I can go back and reread Breakfast of Champions once every two or three years. There's always going to be something new that I find in that particular book that just amuses me differently as I age, as my perspective grows. And Barry Lyndon is very similar in that way. If you haven't seen the film or uh, something you haven't seen lately, I definitely recommend checking that one out. And I want to thank Bookman's for having that one in stock. So remember, Bookman's, they have your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. You were probably... We got a little bit of it, you but there's like... The, the, the thing that I and the infantilization of 40 year old men in this country is absurd to me. It's something I don't relate to. I don't get it. I can't get my head around it. I will never have something that I call a man cave. It's that kind of it, th- those things. And it was, you know, pretty much I, I can't imagine seeing my spouse as my enemy and something that I want to like fight against it. That's my partner. That's the one person that I can count on screwing up with and screwing up in front of, and we'll work through it. And so it's something that we have that that's the thing that, that where I get strength from, not a weakness, but it's like that separation of that, that is something that I don't understand. It's something that I think is really toxic and dangerous. I do too. And I think of it as in, in this show anyways, that attitude comes from the very sort of genesis of the show, which is the idea that people see the poster of that couple of an Allison and a Kevin and say like her with him, come on. And with the show, I wanted to argue that, yeah, her with him. And this is how, like, this is the psychology that led that woman there. This is like the, her past that made her think that, you know, I tried to build her so that yes, she ended up with him. Yes, she stayed with him. And I wanted to build him in a way where he sees, he knows the disparity between them. He absolutely does. And he cuts her down as a joke all the time to keep her unaware. And I see that by the way, in real life, all the time with people who are insecure in their relationships, they cut the other person down so that they don't think they're so great and they won't leave. So yeah, I think that that's why he sees her as like sort of something to be controlled is because he knows she could leave at any moment if she just sort of woke up. And I think that's where my, and for the, your friends that aren't necessarily a Kevin, as it were, but they have that insecurity about it. Because when you're in a relationship with somebody, you have that there is a level of, I do have my wife on some degree of a pedestal where I admire her and I aspire to be more like her. And so there is that way that I feel like I'm getting away with something by being with her. And I think a lot of people, you should feel that way about each other, hopefully. I totally agree. I, I I think that there's a nice balance to be had of like, really, they're with me? And if <laughs> people feel that, then man, you hit the lottery. Yeah. And I, I know we're, God, it's going by so quick, uh, getting short on time here. Um, but I just, the opening, th- when I was watching the first episode of it, and it just, I was really taken aback, and it just stopped me for a second when I saw the Ferlin at the end of it. Because that, that was just one of those things where, and just to think about her, because Laggies is a movie that was actually very important to me. And thinking about her in this role, and this is just material that I think, not that this was not directed well and executed beautifully, because I think it was, but I think she would have just been such a perfect fit for this material. And she, I mean, we got, we got really lucky in that she is such, she is there, like, 
we we were originally supposed to start shooting in March of 2020, so that clearly did not happen. Um, right. And she, I think, was already on the ground in Boston. I mean, we cast the show with her. We built sets. We redesigned. We found locations. Like she was so in that pilot, um, and and I I we went through hoping to honor all of the work she did while also making sure that we built on it. And, you know, they live on Shelton Street. That is, they'll yeah. forever live on Shelton Street. And I'm, I think she would have done such a great job too. And it, I'm curious how it would have been different, but I also really love what we ended up with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, it's a, it's just one of those things. It's a nice, her memory will not be lost anytime soon. So it is one of those things that just her work will be around for quite a while. I think her impact will last. Yeah, she was my but, she was my entire list of hopeful directors. She I walked her to the elevator after our meeting, and she said, "Valerie, thank you so much for considering me and having me on your list." I said, "Lynn, you are the list." <laughs> I could not believe I couldn't believe that she would take a meeting on the show, let alone want to direct it. I was such a fan of hers, um, and still am. And I, I got and I'm sorry to jump back around, but there was something that I did want to touch on that was just um, other thing was the. In that episode four, when you have the phone and she's ignoring it, and it ties into this love letter to Boston that's also poking a lot of fun at Boston, um, the use of that Dropkick Murphy song, you somehow found all these layers of using a ringtone where it has all these different meanings. And by the time it gets to that, it's it's kind of like the way that you use the mechanic in it, where it's like, it's just this thing that you think is a throwaway, but this show constantly is pulling things back, and it's never it's constantly defying what my expectations would be. So thank you for that. And thank you for saying love letter slash Pokemon. Yeah, it's a a love slash hate letter. I I mean, it's how you feel about your hometown. I'm from New England. Like, it's just both. It's definitely both. But in no way was I writing the show being like, what's an easy group of people to make fun of? Oh, Bostonians. It's like, no, I am one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I used to, I'm from Delaware. I lived a half hour outside of Philadelphia. That's, my hometown is Philadelphia, and if you don't, you cannot get more absurd, possibly with Boston, than the people of Philadelphia. Those are the people I love. But if you go to the Mummer's Day Parade on January 1st, it's ridiculous. It's, how does it still exist? How does it, it's so dicey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so but, weird. I agree. Um, but thank you again for, I know we're over time at this point, but thank you for taking the time to do it. And thank you for making such a lovely show. This is something that I'm going to take my time with now that we've spoken. I'm going to go back and watch this with my wife and I'm going to enjoy this over the next two months, I think. Thank you so much, Chris, for so nice talking to you. You as well. And p- please keep this up because we, we need we need more stuff like this. So thank you. I'm on it. Man, if you want to write it, come on over. Well, <laughs> if, I, if I could. If I, the, the, the reason I'm doing this right now is because I can't write. I, I'm a terrible actor. It all went south. I tried, like like so many others, but the world is a better place with me interviewing creative people, not me trying to be creative. That's lovely to know. That's great. I know it about myself. I'm honest. So. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Valerie. Take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Time enough to figure you out 
time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope